Amen. Well, it is a joy to be back with you this week. I have missed you all and uh, look forward to continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark. So I am just, uh, we had a wonderful time on vacation. It's time of resting, get ready for busy holiday season coming up. And so just thankful to be back with you this Sunday. I wonder, have you ever heard or seen something that kind of left you utterly astonished? You know, you, you perhaps saw something, you heard something, and it just kind of left you speechless, like mouth drop, just kind of like, wow. Maybe even perhaps at the news, maybe a, a slight faint feeling of fear, of uneasiness, just you don't feel quite right. I think in our lifetime, perhaps one event that probably touches the strings of that um, across our culture, um, if you're older, uh, than say, you know, 15, um, or 16, um, only because of when it was. Uh, but I think that would be 9-11. If we think back over, um, you know, over the years as I've talked with people all over the country, as I've asked, you know, uh, people have a similar experience of, of astonishment, almost as if they couldn't believe the news they were hearing. You know, as if the what was on the TV wasn't real, as if it was just a movie playing something from Hollywood. Can this really be? And they were astonished and amazed at, at the, this news. I think if we think about it, I think that's natural. I think that's normal. When we hear things... Uh, oftentimes we're caught by surprise. Uh, maybe it's uh, bad news, or, or maybe it's good news. Uh, whatever kind of news it is, it's it's shocking, it's astonishing, it it surprises us. Uh, we're often taken back by news or information uh, because of the unexpectedness of it, or or the unwantedness of it, or perhaps, as the name implies, it's new to us, right? And uh, culturally, we, we're engaged in a way that, that uh, new information surprises us and takes us off guard as, as we try to figure everything out. Well, friends, this kind of astonishment and amazement over information or news, what's exactly what the people that we're going to encounter today were experiencing in their whole life? As they encountered Jesus and his message, they were left astonished. They were left amazed at what Jesus was saying. They were, they were, if you will, shocked over what they heard and what they saw. That's what we're going to consider this morning in our time together. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We've been continuing, as I mentioned, a a series of studies through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we've made it all the way to to chapter 1, verse 21. So we have made some progress, and by the end of the year, we will make it maybe through chapter 2, and uh, Lord willing. And uh, so uh, God has just been gracious to us as as we have considered over the last few weeks Jesus' identity. Well, let's begin by reading Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And they, that is Jesus and the disciples, went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. 
And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. Well, friends, the scene is set in Capernaum. It's divided, if you will, into two parts. This one single event, as Mark sort of over the next couple weeks will consider one day in the life of Jesus and Jesus' ministry there in Capernaum. We're going to kind of take a snapshot of it this morning. And this one particular scene is set, if you will, in two parts. So the first part, we see Jesus you know, going into the synagogue. He's teaching. And then the second part, we, we, we see Jesus sort of in this one man. Both of which, we see, are met with overwhelming amazement and astonishment at what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. Mark's point in including this particular story in the narrative of all the stories of Jesus he could have started with. This is the very first one he started. The very first story that he includes in his gospel is a story about Jesus in a synagogue with an unclean spirit. He makes clear by bookending, if you will, at the beginning and the end of this particular story, the people's amazement. Notice the story begins with amazement and it ends with amazement. This is a theme as as we read through the Gospel of Mark, a theme that comes up over and over again. The people's amazement at what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. People are astonished. And I think naturally leads to a question, am I astonished with Jesus? Am I amazed at what Jesus, is this this amazing? I think as you consider perhaps someone, if you're someone who is familiar with Bible stories, oftentimes they go one in ear and out the other, right? Without any amazement and astonishment. Well, friends, my hope is this morning that we all leave here a little more amazed at what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. His focus in this particular narrative is the same, and it will be the same throughout the whole gospel. Who is Jesus? Mark is working at lengths to help you have a greater sense of Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of God. That's how he begins the gospel Verse 1 of chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And through this particular narrative, he yet again gives us another point in our belt, another, another way in which we might demonstrate in our own lives Jesus' divinity as the, as the Son of God, because he has authority to teach. Jesus has authority. And the point of this particular passage, and what I hope that you'll come away with as the point of this sermon, is that Jesus is the Son of God, 
who has divine sovereign authority. Jesus is the Son of God because He has sovereign authority. He has authority over all people. And as we consider Jesus' authority, I thought it just might be helpful this morning to consider sort of a response to that news. How do we respond to the news or the information that Jesus is the Son of God with divine authority? How is it that we are to respond to this authority that Jesus is saying that he has? And so how do we respond? I think we see in our passage at least two ways that we are to respond to his sovereign authority. First, by submitting to Jesus as the greater teacher. And two, by trusting Jesus, the more powerful one than evil. In this passage, divided evenly in two parts, first, Jesus as a teacher, and second, Jesus as authority over demons. Jesus has authority over evil. Let's consider the first one. Mark begins the scene by telling us that Jesus and his companions, the first four disciples, Peter, James, and John, are traveling uh, to Capernaum. Capernaum, a region there in Galilee. And they come into Capernaum on the Sabbath day. And it's on the Sabbath day that Jesus chooses to go into his synagogue and begin to teach. If you're not familiar with uh, the Bible, you might be just, what's a synagogue? I, I, maybe I've, you may have heard of it. Maybe you've got a Jewish friend, go to synagogues. A synagogue is, is basically a place uh, uh, where Jews in the first century would have gathered together in a community. Where So any boy that's 13 years or older who's been circumcised in the community would have gathered together in the synagogue. And they would have gathered together for the particular purpose to hear God's word read, right? So they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have printed Bibles. They, had, they were dependent upon someone reading the Bible to them, reading the, the law to them. And so they would go and hear God's word read, and then someone would expound it. Someone would teach them. Remember, we see this early on in, in the life of, of Israel. We see this early on, an example of them doing this. But we see this particular if we read in our Old Testaments the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We begin to see what this, this synagogue life begins to look at as they gather together to not only read God's word, but hear God's word taught to them. And so, so Jesus would have naturally uh, been a part of this culture there in Jerusalem. And he goes, not in Jerusalem, but in Judea. And he goes in there and he begins to teach. So th- this wouldn't have been strange to anyone, right? So the lay people were the ones that were teaching. It wasn't, didn't have any theologically trained, you know, uh, rabbis that were getting up or anything like that. It would have been the laity. So this wasn't surprising to the people that Jesus, uh, a lay person, uh, would have gotten up and began to teach. And so that's the picture we see here. Jesus stands before God's people and begins to read and instruct them. But when Jesus begins to speak that day, something is different. As they begin to listen to what he's saying and begin to understand the, the message that he is instructing them in, as naturally he would have read a passage from the Old Testament and they begin to expound it, as they heard it, something rang differently. Something was strange about what Jesus was saying. Something was off, if you will. Something just wasn't right. It didn't feel right. And, and so the people began to think about it. But what was so strange? Why did they feel so strange? Why? 
Was it because they were uneducated and perhaps didn't understand? Was it because they, they were illiterate or, 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 or just they just were blockheads? They couldn't figure it out? What was it about them? I don't think that's the case at all. I think clearly they understood, at least in a, in, in a minute or small way, what Jesus was saying. Because Mark tells us that they considered among themselves what he said. So they weren't like just... Just walking away like, hey, I don't know what that guy preacher was up there talking about today, right? Uh, it wasn't like that at all. They understood that something was different. Something was different. Well, for us to understand what was so different, we first have to understand who were these scribes that Mark mentions. In verse 22, he says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Who were these scribes that Mark mentions? Fascinating. Mark doesn't tell us. It says the scribes. Right? Mark writing to a Gentile, a, a, a Gentile church, right? A non-Jewish church. And, and he assumes that they are understanding who scribes are. In fact, if you read the other gospel writers, they don't really give us any clue either. Right? It was sort of understood who these men were. Why? Because they were so prominent. Scribes were, if you will, the upper echelon of religious life. They were the know-it-alls when it came to religious things. They were more than the know-it-alls. They were prestigious. In fact, if you saw uh, one of these rabbis walking down the road, you would have, you know, and you had a question, you would have ran up and asked him, hey, I got, I'm not sure about this. What should I do? I've got this particular issue. And, you know, what's God think about it? And that kind of thing. That's what they would have done. They, they, these men were known. They, they were, they were, uh, they were scribes, you know, as their sort of primary job. So a scribe, a copyist. They were someone who would have taken the Old Testament scrolls and they would have copied them. Day in, day out. Now, naturally, what would happen, right? If you sat, you you went home as a little project, and you began to handwrite the Bible, right? And you did that every day for a while. What would happen? You begin to know the Bible pretty well, wouldn't you? You begin to you begin to digest a lot of that information. So these men were knowledgeable because they were exposed so much to Scripture. They they had memorized so much of what God's Word was saying, and so they were very knowledgeable. They could quote, you know, quote the Bible often. And so these men were not obscure figures in society, but prominent in their in the life of Judaism. But even outside of Judaism, uh, scribes were prominent in the life of of Gentiles as well. And so these men were notable for their teaching. They were notable for their instructions. They would give interpretations of the Bible. But what was fascinating, when they would give interpretations, they wouldn't say, well, I think that, you know, Jeremiah is saying this here. They wouldn't do that. They, they wouldn't say, well, I think what Moses is trying to teach us here is this point. They wouldn't do that. What they would do is they would say, well, I think Rabbi Hillel is saying this. I think Rabbi Shammai is saying this. This is what I think. This is what Moses is saying This because this is what Rabbi Hillel has said. And so they're, they're standing, if you will, or they're referring to someone else's translation. Kind of much like uh, in the United States how our court system works, how lawyers and judges work. 
Right? So if you've ever, you know, watched Law and Order, uh, you know, you might have a clue in this. I don't know. Uh, but right? What do they do when, the, when, when you're arguing a case? What do they refer to the law? They don't say, well, the law says this. Oftentimes they will. But what do they do? They, they refer to other court cases where other judges have made decisions, right? They say, well, in this particular case, this judge or this court ruled this way, right? They, they're dependent on someone else's translation, on someone else's interpretation of the law. That's how our Supreme Court functions, if you will. Or how they're supposed to function, right? So, so they, they, they go to the Constitution, they say, well, we believe this is what the Constitution says. This is what we believe these laws that Congress have written mean, right? So they're kind of like scribes in that way. So, so you don't have the ability to go to the, go to the Constitution and say, well, no, I think it means this, and I'm going to do it that way, right? You don't have that ability, right? But the Supreme Court has that authority and that ability. And so we begin to see kind of uh, how these men function. Nevertheless, these men were very revered. So, so how was it that Jesus' teaching differed from their teaching? What was it that was so different about it? Well, simply, Jesus never referred to anyone else in his interpretation. Jesus never said, well, so-and-so said this, or, or in this particular case, uh, they did this, and so we're going to do it this way. Jesus never pointed to tradition or other interpretations for his interpretation of the law. When Jesus taught, Jesus was clear. The law is about me because I wrote it, right? Jesus was clear. Jesus didn't do things the way they did it because Jesus had a greater authority. In other words, Jesus said, I have authority because I am the author of the book. I am the one who wrote it. And when they heard the way Jesus taught, they were astonished. They got it. They saw it. This guy is different. And what he says is strange. And we are blown away, for he teaches as one with authority. And the point that Mark wants us to see is that Jesus has authority. He doesn't want us to just say, oh yeah, Jesus was different than the other religious guys. He was cooler or more hip or more relevant to the day or whatever you might want to say about Jesus. No, Jesus was vastly different because he was in a completely different category. No different than if you wrote a book versus you interpreting a book. If you write the book, you have a particular interest in the way that it's interpreted. And so Jesus had a particular interest in the way it was interpreted because he wrote the book. As, as John tells us, he is the word. Came flesh. And the focus we see here isn't so much on what Jesus taught, but on how he taught. Interestingly, Mark doesn't tell us what he said. It doesn't, he leaves that out. And Luke, who picks up Mark's story in his gospel, uh, doesn't tell us either what he said. Perhaps the summary statement in chapter 15 was sufficient. You know, when he says Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom, maybe that was sufficient. Maybe, right? Because it really doesn't matter what Jesus said. We know what he was saying in whole, and that was the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Jesus was sharing was the good news of the gospel coming. And so Mark's focus throughout his gospel, if you, you know, sort of look at it, he doesn't have long portions of instruction like uh, perhaps Matthew does in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Because Mark is sort of laser focused on one particular person. He wants you to encounter the Scriptures. He wants you to consider the Gospel. And be amazed. And astonished. Not what is said, but at who is saying it. Brothers and sisters, this passage reminds us of why we have church membership. This passage reminds us why we have church membership. Because words matter. Words matter. Jesus makes clear that words words matter. And the reason that God has given us membership in a local congregation, a covenanting together for one another, is so that we can hold each other accountable to Jesus' words. That we can hold our lives together. Membership helps make boundaries in our lives so that we can have tangible ways to obey Christ's commands. Oftentimes, if you consider many of the commands of Christ, they are unable to be fulfilled apart from the local church. This can't be fulfilled. How are you going to love if there's no one to love? Right? If it's just you at home watching Joel Osteen, you ain't loving nobody. Right? Right? His words are authoritative in our lives, both individually and corporately. So His words matter in our lives. When He speaks, we must obey. It's fascinating how people can say they're followers of Christ, but don't follow what He says. Right? Obedience is a sign that you're following Jesus. That's what it is. Obedience is a picture uh, that you have aligned your life with Jesus. Obedience is telling those around you that Jesus has authority. And when we disobey, when I disobey, we send a signal to the one, those around us. Jesus doesn't have authority. I do. Authority matters. Jesus wants us to see him as the great teacher. Jesus confronted them with his authority, and he confronts us with his authority. And the question is, will you submit to Jesus, the greater teacher? Let's consider this last and final point, how we respond to Jesus' authority. I believe, secondly, we trust Jesus, the one more powerful than evil. The one more powerful than evil. The scene shifts, if you will, from a panoramic shot to a narrow, laser-focused attention on one particular man and Jesus. From the crowd Jesus was teaching to one particular person in the congregation, a, a crazed man begins to cry out, begins to shout, Jesus, Jesus, what are you doing here? I know who you are. Mark identifies this man as one with an unclean spirit. Maybe your Bible says demon. It's one and the same. Mark uses that interchangeably throughout the Gospel. An unclean spirit is someone who's demon-possessed. This man had a demon in him. A demon had come into this man, and, and we see this demon was so strong that he even spoke on behalf of the man. He, he compelled this man to speak. And Jesus encounters this demon-possessed man. Friends, do not miss the focus here. It's centered on a cosmic showdown. Between Jesus and a minion of Satan. 
And all throughout the Gospel of Mark, just a little homework for you, or maybe a little project on your own. Read through the Gospel of Mark and find every mention of a demon and notice where he's at. He's always at the synagogue. He's always among God's people. Perhaps a point that Mark is making, I don't know, but I think it's important to see. Mark identifies sin and Judaism quite clearly through that connection. But the focus is clear. There's a battle about to ensue. The tension is created in the story as, as Jesus and this man go head to head in a battle, much like we saw in the temptation of Jesus. The battle, the battle if you will, begins with, with, with an attack upon Jesus. The, the man begins to declare things, begin to cry out to this man, crying out loudly. He, he would have not, you know, been missed among the crowd that day. This man begins to scream, Jesus, Jesus, what are you doing here? Jesus of Nazareth cries out, what are you doing here? What are you do- You Literally, you ain't got no business here. You don't need to be here. You're in the wrong part of town, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Notice, he doesn't begin by declaring Jesus' real identity, but his human identity. Perhaps an attack upon Jesus' humanity. Perhaps this demon thought that he, can, he had the upper edge upon the eternal Son of God because he was in human flesh. Perhaps this demon thought today, we're going to have victory over Jesus. Perhaps this is the day. What are you doing here? You don't belong here. Mind your own business and get lost, Jesus. I have authority here. I have power here. You have none. The battle ensues. Verse 24. Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to get rid of us? You consider that question that that demon asked. You begin to, why does he ask that question? If he's trying to attack Jesus, what, what's this question about destruct, being destroyed? And then he uses this plural. It's this one guy, one demon, and then he says, have you come to destroy us? As if there's more of them. This demon seems to be speaking on behalf of the, uh, uh, of the whole and saying, is today the day? Is today the day? Sort of clue you into a little bit of their knowledge and understanding of the end of time. When one day all will be, all these demons will be destroyed in a lake of fire. And this demon wonders, is this today? We'll consider this in more detail later as we get into the Gospel of Mark, because another demon asks the same question. Fascinating, isn't it? They know and understand who Jesus is. They're not confused about Jesus. Right? And, and, and Mark, masterly uses that to help us understand who Jesus is. Jesus, excuse me, Mark uses demons to help prove to you Jesus is the Son of God. Amazing, doesn't it? Amazing. Amazing to see. Have you come to destroy us? This demon recognizes that when the king has come, so does his kingdom. And now that the king has arrived, he knows that the clock has been started. And as I have said, week in and week out, when Jesus arrived that day, that was the start of the end. 
The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That is, if you want to know when the doomsday clock started, it started the day Jesus showed up. And ever since then, we have been falling off that cliff because one day the king will come again. And friends, don't, don't miss the point that's being made here because it's a demon speaking. Don't just, oh, that demon's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. No, that demon says he knows what he's talking about. Look at verse 24 again. He says, I know who you are. I know who you are. Literally, I have known who you are. And I've always known who you are. Ever since the day I was created, I've known who you are. I've never been confused about who you are, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. You are the one whom the Spirit rests. You are the one with power and authority. You are the eternal Son of God. It's just striking as we consider what this demon is declaring. Many, many commentators, as they're thinking through this, begin to, you know, think that this man is trying to foil Jesus, if you will. Try to get the word out about Jesus and somehow sort of stop the plan of redemption. Somehow stop Jesus. That, that seems to be the tactic being used here by Satan. Somehow trying to stop where they know what's coming in the cross. They know what's coming. At any moment, at any day, they know that victory will be won. And so, in any way, they're trying to stop him. But it doesn't work. Jesus isn't fooled, nor is he tempted to run away. Jesus stands his ground, and the battle ensues. And he responds with an authoritative word. An authoritative word. Jesus doesn't respond with a show with anything crazy, he responds with a word. Notice what he says. Be silent and come out of him. Be silent and come out of him. Jesus doesn't cower in the face of spiritual forces. Jesus doesn't you know, run away scared. Jesus declares literally, be muzzled. Be muzzled is what he says. Be muzzled. In colloquial English, shut up. Right? So he says. It's an authoritative word spoken by someone in authority. Silence. Be quiet. I have authority over you. So to help you understand this, a good example would be perhaps if I or a complete stranger walked up to your child and said to your child, shut up! Right? Now, depending on, you know, it really wouldn't matter, would it, what your kid was doing, even if your kid was acting like a complete fool, right? If someone walked up to your kid and said, shut up, you would probably say something back, and hopefully not hurt them, but something would happen. You would be, you, 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 would, you would react to that. You, you would say, you don't have authority to tell my kid what to do, right? Or perhaps, if that's not an experience you've had, um, perhaps if you've ever had a conversation with a teenager before, right? What do they say to you? Uh, you know, if you tell them something to do and they're not your kid, what do they tell you, right? You're not my mama. You can't tell me what to do, right? You can't tell me what... You have no authority over me, right? Why? Because authority matters, right? Authority, that's what's happening here. It's exactly what's happening. Jesus is saying, whoa, buddy, you don't have authority over me. You don't have authority to tell me what to do. You can't tell me what I'm... 
This isn't interrogation of Jesus' time. This is time for you just to sit down and shut up. Right? I have authority over you this morning. I have authority over you in this place. Notice that Jesus doesn't use some ritual or incantation. He doesn't use some mystical words of, uh, of exorcism. He doesn't splash holy water on them. or He doesn't call out to anyone of greater power. He doesn't cry out to Yahweh. He doesn't cry out to Elohim. He doesn't cry, Father, deliver me from this demon. He says, be silent and come out of him. Jesus, with all authority and all power, tells that demon what to do. And friends, what is so striking isn't... It is striking that what Jesus said, but what is so striking is what he says and what he does. Look at what he says again in verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And here's what's striking. You see it? And the unclean spirit convulsing and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. The demon responds. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't talk back. He doesn't run away to say, who are you, Jesus? What are you talking about? You don't have no authority. No, he didn't do that. He immediately comes out of him. He obeys him. Friends, do not miss the beauty of this passage and the awe and astonishment of it. When Jesus speaks, demons obey. For He is the King of kings. And He is the Lord of lords with all power and sovereign authority, even over evil. And the people respond with utter amazement. What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. Friend, I wonder, are you amazed at Jesus' authority? Are you astonished by it? Does it tremble you to think and consider God's authority in your own life? For the Bible tells us that God created us. And because God created us, He has a particular authority over our lives. But each one of us reject that authority. Say, God, that's great, but I'm going to live life my own way. And in choosing to live life our own way, God, because He is holy and because He is just, He condemns every one of us to hell. Condemns every one of us because of our sin. But in His love, He sent His Son who would restore that broken relationship. And through the cross of Christ, Jesus died for our sins as a substitute for us. He paid the penalty for our rebellion against God's authority because He lived a life of perfect submission to God's authority. And then He lived a life and He died on the cross for you and I as a substitute. He was raised for our justification so that all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Him would be saved. And through God's plan of redemption, He has made it possible again for us to live under God's authority in a right relationship with God. And of all those who have repented and trusted in Christ, well, they now can enjoy living in submission to Him again 
And they await the day when they will live in perfect submission to Christ. This is the Christian gospel. This is the message we proclaim and the message I want you to believe. If you're a Christian this morning, do you trust that Jesus is more powerful than evil? Does this passage move your soul to trust that Jesus is greater than anything out there in the world? Or anything greater in our own hearts? Brothers and sisters, I hope you can see the implication of this for our own lives. If Jesus has authority over evil, then there is no greater sin in our lives that can separate us from Jesus. There's nothing in our lives, no sin that we've committed, no mistakes that we've made, no, no amount of sin, none, that can separate us from the love of Christ in Jesus. Nothing. Nothing can separate us. There's no demon who is stronger, no sinner too far gone. In this passage, we are given a great hope that Jesus has great authority. And my prayer this morning is that may we may with confidence trust and believe declare these words of Paul, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all the day. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor powers, neither heights nor depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, no demon, no sin, no religious teacher is greater than Jesus. How will you respond to His authority in your life? I conclude by considering this last and final question. So what? Why does it really matter that Jesus has authority? Mark, why, why start with a story of authority? Why go to lengths over the verses ahead about Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority over people. Jesus' authority over sickness. Jesus' authority over demons. Jesus' authority... Uh, why? Jesus' authority over nature. Jesus' authority... Jesus, why? Why? Because if Jesus has no authority then the cross has no power. If Jesus isn't who He says He is, then it's all pointless. And so friend, I wonder, do you trust and do you submit your life to the authority of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank You for the grace that You have given us this morning in Christ. That You have brought us near to Your Word. Father, first and foremost, I pray that a better sermon is, was heard than the one preached. 
pray your spirit is moving in our hearts to bring conviction of sin. Father, I pray that we might live our lives in submission to your word because you have authority over our lives. Father, help us to recognize your authority in all aspects of our lives, not just church life, but home life, work life, entertainment life. May we see that you have authority over all areas. And Father, may we have hope. Give us hope this morning. Give us encouragement this morning to know that you are greater than any force in the world. You have all power and all authority. And may we trust in that every day. And we give our lives to you, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.